stop wasting your time trying to persuade someone who's already against you. And so in this election, I'm not worried about the Trump supporters. I'm worried about our folks staying home and trying to get the people who are already with us out to the polls. That's New Jersey Senator Cory Booker, who appears in the new documentary 13th, which centers on race in the criminal justice system. He'll join Steve Phillips, best-selling author of Brown is a New White, to discuss this election, Obama's legacy, and what's up with all those Snapchats. I'm Amy Allison, and this is Democracy in Color, the voice of the new American majority. You can listen to episodes of this podcast on democracyandcolor.com, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. Please subscribe and rate Democracy in Color on iTunes. Enjoy. Do we participate in a politics of cynicism, or do we participate in a politics of hope? But when we are together, we've got power, and we can make decisions. I stand before you today as a candidate for the Democratic nomination for the presidency of the United States of America. We want to register to become first-class citizens. I'm really proud to be in conversation with New Jersey Senator Cory Booker. It's glad to have you in the Democracy in Color studios. It's good to be here. Thank you very much. You say that so formally. I am, I'm, a formal, I'm a formal lady. And we're also joined uh, by Steve Phillips, uh, best-selling author of Brown is a New White, back on the show. It's good to see you, Steve. Good to be here. And uh, we should uh, uh, note that uh, Senator Booker is also a best-selling author. That's right. So, yes. That's right. And your books came out about the same time. Uh, same Brown month. Is a new you were white in February, right? Yes. Also? Yeah, we were, yeah. I was a few weeks ahead. Um, but then. It's interesting, the themes of your book were really reflected in your uh, speech at the convention. Yes, very much so. I mean, I think that one thing we have to realize in this country is that we're all in this together. And I think what I tried to paint in the convention speech is that old African uh, proverb that if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And unless we deal with um, the divisions and the injustices in our midst, it hurts the whole, the body as a whole. Yeah, it's like we're going back to the basics. It's a basic civics lesson all around with what's been going on in the country. Yes. I want to start with love. You talked about love a lot. Yeah, I think that that is the most uh, uh, important force in our politics today. Um, patriotism, you can't have love of country unless you love your country, men and women. And what we have right now is a lack of a lot of that courageous empathy that is a, is a byproduct of love, a lack of being able to see our neighbor for who they are. Like we talk a lot about tolerance as the, as the apex in this country of what we strive for, but that's not true. Toleration means we're just stomaching each other's right to be different or they disappear off the face of the earth. We're no worse off or better off. Well, love is the ability to see everybody with worth and dignity and value and to know that your destiny is wrapped up in their destiny. And so what affects them adversely actually affects you as well. And so it's this larger calling that reflects our founding documents as much as they were saddled with the bigotry, racism, sexism of the time from Native Americans being referred to as savages, women not at all, blacks as fractions of human beings. If you look at the Declaration of Independence, it ends with this profound statement of love, of interdependentness. When they say, in order to make all this work, we must mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And that's like salve, because let's be 
Frank, uh, with all the vitriol that we've been hearing from the Trump side, um, it's been hard uh, to embrace love. And, you know, uh, Steve and I have known each other long, known each other a long time. We always, you know, it, it's time to reflect. Uh, eight years ago, uh, when uh, Barack Obama was uh, just about to, you know, uh, face the election and, you know, when you're reflecting on those last eight years, Steve, what for you were the thing, you know, your greatest hope, your love, what for you did you see? Uh, how do you assess the presidency? Well, it's interesting because I think in some level what's happening now is a reaction to Obama's election, right? In that it was, you know, I opened my book juxtaposing the description of King's assassination, April 4th, 1968, Jesse Jackson and Andy Young waiting for King to come out to see him get shot down. And then I fast forward 40 years to Grant Park, November uh, 08, um, Jesse Jackson, tears coming down his face, looking at another black leader come out, Martin Luther, uh, uh, Barack Obama. In those 40 years, the country has changed dramatically. We've gone from a country that held black people in bondage to electing a black person as president of the United States. And so it was, I think, a very profound uh, moment and Tra- you know, uh, transition point for our country, but I don't think we're done. I actually think that this election and the 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 energy and the vitriol from the Trump side is there are people who feel intuitively that this is the last best chance to hold back those types of demogra- demographic changes and to go back to this whole thing of make America great again. I mean, really think is code for make America white again. And so that's where I feel is in the balance in this election. And that so in some ways we won't really know what it will all be until this election is resolved on how things play out in the next few years. Although it was amusing in the, um, the uh, Between Two Ferns show when then Hillary did it, and then he jokingly says to Hillary, For the kids. You'll be the first white president <laughs> they've ever known. <laughs> <laughs> right. How do you feel so, about being the first right, white president? Right. Really, anyone born 10 years ago, the only president they've known is Barack Obama. But I have two words for you, Senator. Michelle Obama. Powerful. Last year, last week, excuse me, she gave a speech that as a woman, I felt spoke to me. So it was the most polit- most emotionally raw um, and truthful and vulnerable speech I've ever heard given in a political context. Yeah, I joked to people at the convention, I felt like Yoham um, Prince, who gave this amazing speech at the March on Washington, um, and but nobody really. It's and if you read the text, it's powerful. But he spoke right before Martin Luther King, and so at the convention, I felt like I poured my heart into a speech, but I spoke right before Michelle Obama, <laughs> <laughs> and, and my mom even said, "What a great speech she gave!" I'm like, mom, 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 mom listening. I said, "Mom, I spoke first. What did you think of my speech?" Um, but uh, she has just as a as a as a person for inarguably one of the most popular people in America right now, probably in the pantheon. She's probably in the top five, I would imagine, um, uh, to be uh, an African-American female uh, who can speak to uh, the hearts of Americans. It's a powerful thing. And then when she took that moment, there's a lot of times when the message meets the moment, um, uh, she did that. And I and I, it resonated in a way that it was uplifting to me to see her speak with so much heart. And there wasn't... You know, there wasn't, it wasn't a political speech. It was just a speech from someone who at, the, at a level of soul uh, was so disturbed by the, yeah. the rancor yeah, of Trump. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the thing that uh, really occurs to me is that for the first time that I know of in our history, a black woman is our moral center. 
That's a great way to put it. Wow. And I would say 50 years ago, Dr. King was the moral center. Did you but see the, uh, was it The Onion who did this piece saying that Michelle Obama said, after November 8th, you all are on your own? I'm tired, <laughs> <laughs> tired of bailing you out? Uh, <laughs> if I see one more post about it, I'm going to miss the Obamas. I mean, mm-hmm. I think right now people, you know, the election is really getting close. There are a lot of people worried because uh, uh, they're uh, concerned about what the outcome of this upcoming election uh might be, particularly around challenges to just fundamental civil rights that we see culminating or threatening, you know, you know, with, with this, um, with this uh, election. And I guess I, my question for you, Senator Booker, is what are you telling people Why right now? Why do you feel uncomfortable with this Senator Booker? Well, should, what should I call you? Corey. All right, Corey. You called me for the first, like, 30, 40 years of my life. All right. <laughs> so, Corey. Yes. <laughs> um, you all can't see this on the podcast. She threw me a little shade right there. <laughs> no shade. It's, it's nice shade. It's shady shade. Um, I, I guess my question is, what are, you, what are we telling people who are very worried uh, about what is going on in this country, about the upcoming election? Well, you should be worried. Um, you know, in politics parlance, when you're running for an office, the, the quote you often hear from politicians is, there's only two ways to run, unopposed or afraid. Um, but I, I'm sorry, there's so much at stake right here in this election that we should be concerned that there's a chance uh, that Secretary Clinton will not win. And and if she doesn't, for people who are concerned about social justice, you're going to see people being deported from this country who know this country's that's going to, the elections make a difference whether they get to stay or go and they know no other country but the United States. This is going to make a difference between whether people know liberty or freedom. Uh, the, the the future of criminal justice reform I think holds in the balance. Um, this is going to make a difference between whether people, the millions of senior citizens who live below the poverty line because they only have these meager social security checks that don't uh, that don't uh, make the bills uh, meet the needs of their of, of the basic needs whether that issue has a chance of being addressed or not. This is a consequential election, not to mention the outcome of the Supreme Court for the next generation, as well as probably affecting the, the United States Senate. So I want people to be concerned. Uh, as in you know, the Ellis song made famous by Sweet Honey and the Rock, you know, we who believe in freedom cannot rest. And if you're arrested on this one, uh, then in my opinion, you're contributing to that which you fear, which is uh, Donald Trump winning this election. Mm. Uh- how does the new American majority deal with this election? Yeah, it's interesting because I have thought for a while that this was the last stand of the explicitly unapologetic white supremacist politics. But I'm, I'm wondering now, are they going to try to consolidate this as an ongoing force on the right? So that'll be a very interesting piece. And, and I was wondering about the the Republican Party. It seems like it's fractured. You have a, Well, that's what's going to be fascinating. Well, you have Donald Trump who's attacking the Speaker of the House. I mean, I've really never heard of anything like that. Yeah. No, they're, they're totally fractured. But what's going to be fascinating is what emerges. And there was a, uh, a tweet going on about how there had been a uh, Democratic poll focus group last year testing Jeb Bush's messages and how they were resonating with African-Americans and with Latinos. And so Democrats have not had to compete for the votes of people of color. And that is what is going to be a likely scenario heading towards 2020. If Rubio is the nominee or if he's in this mix and that. So 
this is not a it's not an end November eighth. I think we forestall the apocalypse by defeating Trump, but then it, it's incumbent upon the Democrats: is are they going to fully embrace Black Lives Matter, immigration reform? Is that are they going to unapologetically embrace see, that? I, see, I'm I'm okay. I'm just going to tell you my fear. I'm going to throw it out there, which is that there's been uh, so much focus on what's happening on the Republican side, the language, just and and uh, what Donald Trump bring, has brought, has created. Um, that there's not enough focus about what's happening within the Democratic Party. It is also a very, very big tent. Um, and, uh, you know, I think about uh, the populism that uh, came to the party through the Bernie Sanders campaign. Where does that, where does that go? Uh, where do people of color who are, need to be engaged in order uh, to have progressive change, where is that? Uh, what's next for the Democratic Party? Well, I just want to say something about the Republican Party right now. Because I hear too much of this prediction of the demise of the Republican Party, this fracturing of the Republican Party. Oh, you don't Party. believe it, huh? Not in the least, because what's going to happen after this election is Donald Trump is going to come and go, um, and the Republican Party is going to be positioned better than the Democratic Party uh, to control all the House, the Senate, and the White House. And why do I mean that? So remember, there's a, there's a, there is an Obama effect, measurable Obama effect on the elections. When he's on the ballot... You see, see surges in voting. You see voter turnout great. And please understand that when, when you have the party in power, usually loses their, their midterm elections. So that's a dynamic leading into 2018. But what also is a dynamic in 2018 is that you have a bunch of senators that won in 2012 with this massive lift that are in states that Democrats don't normally win. Uh, North Dakota, West Virginia, Missouri, these red states and purple states like Ohio, where we have all these Republican Democratic senators who are now up. So if if, if you understand the way the natural flow works, is that most of them are going to lose. So you're going to have Hillary Clinton now with a Republican controlled potentially. I'm going to fight against it, but potentially Republican controlled Senate and potentially Republican controlled House, leading into the 2020 elections, where now. What else is normally flows? When's the last time we had two back-to-back eight years of a Democrat in office? See, I guess that's what's happened in the past. But, you know, Steve, isn't the new American majority changing demographics, right. changing well, the, the dynamic? This is the challenge. And so this is where I feel like we had a – there was an Obama effect, which I feel was almost – well, it was both organized but also organic and, and, and singular, Right. And so first African-American president, you know, as I was saying, 2012, black folks were not tired of having a black president. Right. And so it came out again. So the but the the I mean, the real talk around this past period is that and Obama, I think, admits this now that he was placed too much emphasis on the power of his ideas and his policy to carry the politics and did not tend to the politics. And so the question is going to be, are the Democrats going to invest in a big way in actually building up the institutions, the organizations, the leaders in the communities of color. And so that this is a challenge. I'm actually somewhat concerned, even heading into the final days of the campaign, that they want to expand to Arizona and expand to Georgia, but they're still just doing television ads. And they're not really putting millions of dollars into organizing people person to person to get them out to the polls. That's the fight that Democrats have to have. And I, just want, to be. I yeah. want to add an exclamation point to what he's saying, because that we have the numbers to win, even more states than we usually win. But the question is, is, will we change our tactics to recognize the demographic changes and the need to invest in field and grassroots organizing? And this is some one of the things I think that you're so extraordinary at and help, full disclosure, he was involved in my election as well, 
um, very extraordinary, very extraordinarily successful in activating and engaging an electorate. Which right now, as I look at the totality of how we're spending our money, it's still weighted towards a very yeah. broad, casting this broad right. net that's not as efficient right. and effective. I keep right. hearing, well, interesting yeah. on this point. So this is where we are going to be weighing in. Really, November 9th, is that there needs to be a struggle in the Democratic Party around fully investing and embracing the new American majority, people of color and progressive whites, and not spending all this money in TV ads targeting the white swing voters. And the leadership of the party, the head of the DNC, the DSCC, the DCCC, so we're putting out like a declaration around what the Democratic Party should be This whole as part of our Democracy in Color campaign. We're going to rally people around the country, and we're going to try to put pressure on the party to fully commit. Because I feel that's the next struggle we see, have to engage in. And see, this is the beauty of Steve Phillips is looking around the bend. But every all anyone that I know can see is November 8th, which actually is my birthday. And is it really? I didn't know that. election day. Okay. And let me just say, uh, Steve wrote this, uh, he responded in salon.com, I think. Um, the question was, what should we do about Trump supporters? And there was uh, several people that responded. Steve said one. The nation. The nation, the nation excuse mm-hmm. me, the nation. Uh, you said... Uh, ignore them now, engage them after the election. Right. We, election is limited time, allocation, limited time and resources. And so don't waste your time going after them, but win. I was referencing um, Connie Schultz wrote this piece, um, Sherrod Brown's wife and a columnist in her own right. She was driving and she had this white taxi driver who said, Obama hasn't done anything for uh, anybody. And that she's like, oh, another angry white guy. And then through the taxi ride, it became clear that his, his wife had a serious health condition and they had saved all this money through Obamacare. And then she's like, well, what are you talking about? And he's like, well, he guess he's done something, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so I think we our policy agenda needs to deliver for that community. But we should not be wasting time, energy, and resources trying to get their votes. See, and I, I was going to ask you, because do we embrace uh, the new American majority these last few days before the election, work on strengthening the Democratic Party, like you're saying, Steve? Do we address these concerns of the Trump supporters or their lack of information or connecting the dots about how their lives improved under the last eight years of the Obama administration? Are those two things mutually exclusive? Because what's clear to me is we have not only a race divide, but a class divide that's driving some some of this. So my very first campaign, 1998, I'm in a grassroots campaign, incumbent person, always got the same amount of votes. I'm knocking on lots of doors. And my staff kept getting on me, my team kept getting on me uh, and saying, Corey, you knock on these doors and you get... One person that says they don't like you are not going to vote for you, and you spend a half an hour <laughs> trying to convince that person that you're a nice guy and they should support you. Meanwhile, that stopped you from knocking on another right. 10 doors of people right. that probably would support you if you could just identify them, and then we can get them to the polls. Right. And they said, stop wasting your time trying to persuade someone who's already against you. And so in this election, I'm not worried about the Trump supporters. I'm worried about our folks staying home right. and trying to get the people who are already with us out to the polls. Yeah. I guess no, starting November 9th, uh, what are we doing about uh, healing the racial divides and the economic divide? I mean, I, I'm uh, a person who's just uh, very aware of how the Trump campaign has brought up and brought into the open this racism that's so upsetting. But it's also brought this uh, misogyny that is, uh, you haven't heard things spoken so openly in a political context against women as I've heard in the last months. And it's upsetting on all these fronts. What are what can we do? What needs to be done in order to heal these, uh, you know, these these gaps, this, this this damage, this hate that we've seen? Well, I'm actually wondering, as well, from pausing as, a, as the man to be saying this, but it is it's been fascinating since the 
Trump tape came out, that the number of women who have spoken up and said, something happened to me, something happened to me. I mean, even my Facebook friends, people I haven't, people I didn't know had had gone through different experiences. So I think it's possible that there's something happening in the culture in terms of a a, a corner being turned around being able to talk about these issues and being able to have that be more front and center, even in the progressive movement. One of my friends, she was at a progressive conference. Somebody's putting their hands on her there. You know, so there's a, the door has been open for us to have that conversation in the progressive movement now. And I think my own awareness has been raised in a way that I didn't realize the extent of this problem either. And I, I would just add that, that um, look, I'm hoping post-election we can start having a, a, a deal with race issues by talking about racial realities and that the, the, the I mean, most Americans, and I, I've just came to this interview from talking to large groups of people, and just when I say to people, you don't understand that Florida is a swing state. One out of five African Americans in Florida can't vote because of felony disenfranchisement because blacks are about four times more likely to be arrested for drug use than not. And remember, the overwhelming majority of people being arrested in our country are arrested for nonviolent drug crimes. More people in jail for nonviolent drug crimes today than all the people in jail in 1975. And that drug war is disproportionately affecting poor communities and communities of color. No difference between blacks and whites and using or selling drugs, but blacks are almost four times more likely to be arrested for it. So now you have a situation where Blacks are four times more likely to lose their voting rights. You have states like Florida, one in five can't vote. States like counties in other states, one in three. This has direct connection to overt, bigoted, racist policies where you had after Reconstruction legislators saying how we're going to stop blacks from populating the state legislatures with, with, um, with other African Americans. Well, we could criminalize them and pass laws that if you get tripped up in a black code or all these laws – that you're going to lose your voting rights. And that's a legacy. That's a direct legacy to the racial divides in our country. And here we are today, and we, we need to have an honest conversation. It's hard to heal something if you don't diagnose it. See, I just this morning finally got an opportunity to watch the new documentary, 13th, with, yes. you, with, your, with your end. And you, I mean, that's a documentary, um, Ava uh, DuVernay's uh, new film that really does outline the history that you've been talking about. And uh, gives us a sense of how long this has been happening. You're talking about Reconstruction. That's after the Civil War. And, you know, uh, many people might say, well, what does that have to do with today? And it's important to understand that connection. Absolutely. I I mean, what what we understand from the medical life is you get an injury like you have right now on your thumb. Yes. And we don't tend to it, but we just try to pretend it's not there or cover it up or what have you. It's going to fester and and lead to things getting worse. I, I I have people that are so ahistorical, not understanding, well, how do we get some of our inner cities in the first place? Well, that was overt housing policy that was discriminatory against African-Americans, devaluing African-American communities, incentivizing other activities. So so from the GI Bill, which had very disparate effects on African-Americans, which was a gateway for many folks to get into the middle class, you can kind of go through all this history and how it built us to the present. Now, that doesn't mean that we should have a conversation that puts people in a defensive posture we, we want to try to create a constructive conversation about how we can ind- address the enduring legacy of racism or things like implicit racial bias, which doesn't mean that everybody's a bigot because black folk have – actually, they, I, I'm trying to remember the people that did the study about when they asked people just openly, picture a drug dealer in America, and it's like somewhere like 90% of Americans, black and white, picture of somebody African-American, mm-hmm. when, when actually the majority – a young white person has more of a chance of dealing drugs, a young white male, than a young black male – 
And so unless we can start having some conversations about how this affects policing, for example, if the head of the FBI has the courage uh, Comey to stand up and say implicit racial bias is not only real, but we can we must do something about this in the way that affects policing. Then why can't we as a country begin to talk about this in a way that doesn't people put on yeah. defenses, but has us to address the problem? Because if we don't talk about it, then we're not going to solve the problems that still fester within our communities and create not just divisiveness between people, but also undermine what we all should be looking for, which is the productivity, the the success of other Americans. Yeah, I've seen um, I've seen lots of calls to reform the criminal justice. I mean, uh, Hillary Clinton now says that that's a very important goal of hers, but there's also Republicans who are saying that as well. And I know that's been a cornerstone of a lot of your uh, policy work in the Senate. What, what in your own life makes you so committed to, to changing the criminal justice, the, the, the system that you've been describing? So I take it very seriously, um, the the routine, the patriotic routines that come up in our society. I mean, we all pledge an oath that we'll be a nation of liberty and justice for all, you know. And and, and so it it is a stunning reality for a guy who grew up in a uh, a majority white affluent neighborhood versus for half my life and half my life I've lived in an, sort of the inner city of Newark, New Jersey. And I see clearly the different ju- the way the justice systems are applied, dramatically so. Um, um, you know, nobody was stopping and frisking us when we were walking home from parties at Stanford. There was no big FBI investigations to know who was selling drugs. But I imagine the three of us saw a lot of drug sales, drug deals, and the like that was there. As Byron Stevens says, we have a nation that treats you better if you're rich and guilty than poor and innocent. And so I had a, in my office this week great activists. Uh, for criminal for juvenile justice reform, a young kid at Howard, who was just telling me that he was in a situation where he knew he was innocent, uh, was being held in prison because poor people they don't get out, so you have innocent kids sitting in prison for weeks, months, sometimes years. Can't afford bail or can't afford yeah. bail. So before their trial, their, their public defender was telling them, "Hey, take this plea. You'll you'll be out. You'll be able to go. If you don't, the prosecutor using these mandatory minimums." Is going to put is going to put you in adult court where you're going to face 43 years. Most people, teenagers, are going to say, "I'm out. I want to get out of prison," not knowing they'll they'll get a felony conviction, which means they can't get a Pell Grant, can't get food stamps, can't get business licenses, and so forth. He took the risk and was able to prove his innocence, and now he's out. But we've created a system. It's gotten so bad in America. Most Americans don't know when the drug war started. It also shifted our criminal justice system out of courts and away from juries. To the point where ninety-eight percent plus plead, the, plead, it, plead yeah, yeah. guilty, essentially guilty, to plead to, bargains because we've given prosecutors so much power. This entire book written why innocent people plead guilty. Well, so, I, I heard ninety uh, percent of prosecutors are white, seventy percent are white men in a system predominantly of black you know, affecting uh, black and brown. Right, people. And I think that's yeah. one of the most exciting developments of this past year politically. Is that you know we marched in Ferguson and in Chicago and in Cleveland around these killings um, of these unarmed you know black youth, but in Chicago and Cleveland they voted out the prosecutors, and so there's an organizing effort that Color of Change and other organizations are coming together around to really target that as a driving issue. Right, but I want to I want to tag this to you, but it's much harder when you find ways to disenfranchise people. So if you suddenly have a state that has such 
tens and tens of thousands of black folks who can't vote, right. you're taking away their ability to affect, the, to affect a lot of the outcomes of these elections, right. which is tragic uh, um, and something we got to fight against as well. Well, but I think that this is, this is, these are some of the things that we have to be thinking about now and that assuming that, you know, knock on wood, Senator, uh, uh, Secretary Clinton does win and we have a, at least an ally we have access to as President of the United States. And frankly, uh, as we saw after the whole Skip Gates thing, in some ways, a white person can talk more about race than the uh, African American can. So, what are how are we going to have this conversation? And these things go together. Yeah, Should there yeah, be such? Can yeah. there be a presidential commission with leading senators co-chairing it around a conversation about race in the country? Can that tie into a leading commission around democracy? See, and I, I would, yeah, I think those are great ideas. I personally would like us to learn about um, some of the things that happen in other countries like South Africa, a Truth and Justice Commission, or, you know, where we really address the history of race and, and um, come to account for our history and how our system, including our political system, right, were built. Right, because it was fat. We had a month, maybe, after the uh, South Carolina shootings. We started to talk about the right. persistence of the uh, uh, racist Confederate killed, symbols yes. and yeah. whatnot flag and all of these and people started backing away from it and finally have that but then it dissipated we haven't discussed that anymore that's such an important uh point uh i guess you know the the moment is very dire and uh it it seems like we are tr both trying to get both trying to get people of color to the polls in order to have the uh, hillary clinton be successful and to beat donald trump at the same time we have states with voter disenfranchisement that's a 13 states or more uh, where uh, people of color are being removed from voter rolls right now. Um, so I'm wondering how we, it's almost like we're trying to uh, run against a train. It's like the train's left the building. We're trying to catch up uh, and uh, we can activate more voters. And at the same time, at the state level, it's been hard for people to actually exercise their right. Both of the criminal justice system takes away uh, people with a felony conviction and we have all these other impediments to exercising our full citizenship rights. What are your thoughts about uh, how that's going to impact the election November 8th and, and uh, for future? I mean, that won't change by 2020, I guess, is what I'm saying. Well, it could. It could. And so that's what, that's what the, I think there needs to be a national campaign and a lot, level of visibility shined on these issues. Because some of this, this all takes place, you know, under cover of darkness. People don't really know what's actually happening. So we have, we have the technological tools to shine a light on it now and to really shame people into what are you actually doing, why you're actually rolling these people, taking, off the, 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 um, taking them off the rolls, et cetera. So I do think, I think the most, well, I actually do think one of the most strategic points, the significant parts of Clinton's election, which does not get enough attention, is that I do think every girl and every boy in this country should see a woman president. And I think that actually is very significant. From the terms of the long-term social justice struggle is that we, we will have someone who is accessible and we will have friends in the White House. And so the question as a movement is, how do we take advantage of that? And I've been wanting to look back at like people who worked with in the 60s. And so how do you partner up with the uh, sympathetic White House and to build the social justice movement because you can you can affect the conversation in ways that have an impact in ways that we may not have been able to do prior to this point. But I like your strategies, and this is why Steve's work is so important to me. It's like uh, the Booker T. Washington speech at the uh, Cotton Exposition where you give the famous story about cast down your buckets where you are. I mean, I've seen the reality of an election in 2008 when 
everybody in Newark came out to vote, and those lines around the polling place. And I saw the next year when there's a 2009 election, and everybody didn't come out to vote. If only a fraction of the Obama turnout the year before had happened, we wouldn't have a Republican governor in New Jersey right now. And it really was the city's dramatic drops in New, around New Jersey, people of color, progressive whites, dramatic drop in turnout. Chris Christie becomes governor, cuts funding uh, streams to cities, uh, cuts their earned income tax credit, uh, uh, cuts funding to Planned Parenthood and the like. And that just is a testimony to me that we have this reservoir of strength. If we can figure out a way to keep people activated. My favorite speech from Obama this year, and he's given a lot of phenomenal speech, but it was when he spoke to Howard University and said, this isn't complicated, just vote. Millennials, you guys come out of 40, in the 40 percentiles for a presidential, but in the midterms, you're down in the 20s. He says, you all are so progressive, and even, even millennial Republicans are progressive on a lot of issues. He says, you don't have to occupy anything, just vote, and we'll have a whole new Congress. Yeah, I guess my question is, um, to both your points, uh, assuming Secretary Clinton is elected, is a, you know, it's a, it, uh, in, in, assuming that we have a, a plan for the first hundred days, uh, that's a progressive reforms, including cr- criminal justice reform. How do we hold that uh, administration accountable, and how do we get positive movement? Are we relying on kind of the street heat of the movements like Black Lives Matters and others in order to fuel that, or what's the strategy? Because we've often believed in a candidate. That's not just for president. That's all up and down ballot. Um, and they get in office, we think something's going to happen, and things don't happen. Um, right. Well, so- I would argue we made that mistake with Obama, right? So it's like, oh, we won in 08, and everybody, you know, like uh, uh, Van Jones talks about, you know, we all showed up, and then we all went home, right? And so that we had the, the, the Democratic turnout from 2008 to 2010, Republican turnout dropped 7 million votes, Democratic turnout dropped 26 million votes. That's why we lost the House of Representatives. And so it's not just a question of... That's stunning. I never heard those numbers laid out in that raw right. detail. Well, that's, I think, it's an important point. Seven million and 27. 20, yes. That's why we lost... And then, but the people, such as our friend Chuck Schumer and our friend David Axelrod, actually concluded that we lost the House because the voters, quote-unquote, turned against the president and the Congress because of health care. But that's the, actually not mathematically correct. So anyway, that's you know, just a, a separate point. But I feel the point is how do we build a movement, right? I mean, people struggled, sacrificed, and died to get the right to vote, just the right to vote. We elected a black president. We're likely now to elect a woman president. We're likely to have strong social justice allies, such as Maya Harris and significant positions in the White House. We have to advance our thinking and strategies, I feel, from the level of the 60s to how do we get real power, not de- depending on or hoping Secretary Clinton will do with the right thing, but how do we work right. in concert to build power for the movement? Right. But the Obama coalition, which is a new American majority, multiracial progressives who vote Democratic, what happens to them now? We just talked about, you know, the uh, you know Obama leaving office. Uh, that I believe the Obama coalition is going to be the same group of voters who would elect Hillary Clinton, but then what happens? How do we evolve that group? But you, of course, you spent a fair amount of time in Newark continuing to work with your base. You're going around to these different cities. Let me talk about that a little bit, because that's some of the work that has to take place, is how do you continue to engage your constituents? Right. I mean, look, I love Oz Walker's book, um, In Search of My Mother's Garden, where she talks about the real, in, in this sense, black revolutionary, she says, is always concerned about the least glamorous of things. 
uh, raising the kids' reading level, um, uh, uh, filling out food stamp forms because folk got to eat revolution or not. She says the real black revolutionary artist is always close enough to the people to be there for them when they need them. And that authentic connection with folks, I think, helps to keep faith and comp and even to just know you're fighting. Um, uh, I learned that from Newark leaders uh, from through some mistakes I made as mayor. It's just even if you can't do anything, l- let us know what your fight is, and 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 at least we won't. That doesn't breed cynicism or frustration. So th- what I hear, and I'm now sent around as a surrogate, and I and I'm going to all different types of audiences, from college audiences to seniors, white audiences, but I'm also sent to a lot of black churches, a lot of black community groups, and I hear this frustration from people as folks only show up when it's election time. Right. And and that's a bad feeling for people to have is that they're only being catered to when they you need our vote, um, and that that and by the way, I often say in the presence of white senators that trying to explain to people that look I with this person when they stood up in caucus and were fighting for HBCUs or I've been with this person when they've been fighting for this issue or that issue, but somehow that's not that 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 feeling and that connectivity isn't right. there, and that's why I think your approach. To me, besides just the dramatic understanding of, hey, invest in your base right. um, and the t- turnout, but I think it's also you're saying create a real grassroots, more connectivity, right. um, um, which is really important. Right. And so the Democrats spend hundreds of millions of dollars every year. I mean, it's like a couple billion in a presidential year. And it's, but money all gets hoarded up and then spent on TV commercials trying to change the mind of white swing voters. You could hire thousands of staff people across the country to let people know what the fights are. Wait, is that happening now? It's not happening, but this is the fight that I intend to try to wage with anyone who wants to join me when we launch our Democracy in Color Declaration. Yeah, because right you're going to be working 2018. I mean, your eyes already to the next and well, the I'm next. November 9th. Right. Who's going to be the leadership right. of the party? What right. are their priorities going to be? How are they going to spend their money? So we're rolling out this Democracy in Color Declaration as the opening salvo of this struggle to get the party to do these right things. Yeah, and I was really struck by, uh, you've pulled, cited several books. Yes. Just what are you reading now? Um, so right now I'm reading a book called American Amnesia, which is a great book about what sort of built out this great economy we have and how we're suddenly forgotten that and not doing it. So we used to invest in infrastructure, R&D, affordable education, and and now we're not doing that. But other countries are out-Americaning us and making massive investments. So we've gone from number top infrastructure in the globe, number 16. We've gone from the number one country in the globe for percentage of your population graduating from college to like number 12. So that, that that that's a great book uh, that I'm reading right now. Yeah, Steve, what are you reading? I know you're always reading something. Well, I'm trying to find something actually. Um, I mean, I like to read different um, um, kind of nonprofit narratives. So I, I often, well, I mean, I'm personally actually looking at trying to look at um, even just more. Uh, how do you organize myself? Right, I was even listening today during my run this book, Getting Things Done and whatnot. Right. Yeah, yeah. And then do you I listen do, to audiobooks mostly? I do too. I do the other yeah. one when I run because yeah. I think that there's a every you know, so everybody wants to like you know be part of the movement and be part of it, the, but there's like a lot of blocking and tackling and nuts and bolts and how do you organize and manage information, which is also an important part of power. And so I think that that's something that I'm really trying to figure out. How do I? maximize my own productivity and effectiveness to be able to make an impact. Yeah. How about how to take care of yourself health-wise? That too. That's big yeah. for millennials, is self-care. 
really taking care. I mean, it's nothing activists like, you know, <laughs> generation, we're out in the 90s, you know, you know, out there protesting. We didn't talk about right. self-care. We we're, just burned well, out. Because you, a couple <laughs> years ago, you were talking about the, you were going to do the whole weight thing. And I'm whatnot. vegan. I'm down this year probably 40 vegan? pounds. Are you vegan? Yeah. You're down 40 pounds? Wait, vegan yeah. made you 40 pounds lighter? No, definitely not, because I was an unhealthy vegan last year when I was writing the book uh, and gained a lot of weight. But, um, um, so first of all, there's a great, if you want to watch a TED Talk, Ron Finley, it's called the Gorilla Gardener, South Central LA. And it's a crazy, amazing TED. And he has this, he has this saying, he goes, in South Central LA, we've got drive-bys and drive-throughs. And the drive-throughs are killing more people than the drive-bys. Oh, my goodness. And, and food policy is so broken. And the people that are suffering most from it are poor folks. Is he the guy that's planting the medians yes. with vegetables? Yes. I, I think I I think I saw that. Yeah. So you're on a vegetable diet. This is. Well, like I've been changing. a plant based for two years now, but I've been vegetarian since 1992. Oh. Yeah. So I, I yeah. I've been that way in a long time. Look, African American men especially have the lowest life expectancy of any gender, and and race combination. I mean, it's dramatic how far below we are. And so much of it is because we're eating ourselves to death. Right. I took Corey to uh, have a meeting at uh, Google a, couple year, a few years <laughs> yeah. ago. And we got the huge cafeteria. And all he had was uh, egg whites. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's so good. Cool. It's healthy. No, yeah. It's low carb. He was, modeling, uh, he was modeling the way to do That's it. That's good. We want both of you around a long, long time. And uh, you know how to do something I don't know how to do, which is this freaking Snapchats. Why don't you? You're wasted. Uh... I, don't do... I don't know if it's just... A block or something, but I can't. Your well, there, there is awesome. actual, and actually, I want to ask my my niece is actually here, and she's tries to explain it to me. And I've I have actually read where they have consciously designed it to it's counterintuitive to certain people above a certain age. Really? Yeah, it's like um, it's like people above uh, fifty. If you ask them what time it is, they likely are to have a watch on, and then they look at their arm. But if you ask people under 40, most people will look at their phone. It's so, just a certain... So here's right. like me... Uh, so he's got it's, his phone out. But I'm, I'm showing them a picture of Instagram, me in a shootout with John Lewis at a basketball thing. And I said, you know, he's... I was busy learning how to do free throws. He was too busy learning how to fight for free dumb. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, are you doing your own tweets? Because it's I do my own doing... stuff. I do my own stuff. Okay, a sitting center does his own stuff because yes. you can kind of the authenticity comes across. Are you doing your? You do your own singing Snapchats. I thing do too? Snapchat I'll karaoke. Do all that. Snapchat the karaoke. karaoke? Yes. <laughs> Yes, I got a few centers to do it. And, and so I just put up real things. This is Alton Perry, the person I mentioned before who's fighting for juvenile justice reform, Howard, Howard uh, undergrad. And I just find it, it is a powerful way to influence. And we've already done the political science studies. Mm-hmm. More than my campaign TV ad, mm-hmm. you communicating directly on social media to your circle of friends and followers mm-hmm. is more influential. So you should be like I am on, on Instagram, Facebook. Facebook, uh, Twitter, and Snapchat. Were you on the floor of Congress helping some of those... Congress people <laughs> yes. do social media. Yes, I was. Tell me the story because uh, well, um, you so didn't see the whole thing because the cameras got no, shut off. No, yes. Well, we did a in, – in on the Senate side, uh, Chris Murphy led a filibuster, 15 hours, I think, about on the floor. I, I stood in solidarity with him. Um, and then the House followed by doing a sit-in led by the John Lewis. And I was just laughing because – to myself because I saw a lot of my colleagues, some of them mastery, some of them definitely novices about how do you – keep Periscope and things live going. In fact, I got some of the, you know, I'll get about, I'll get millions, sometimes over 10 million hits, unique impressions a week or uh, impressions a week. Uh, But when I was doing the live Periscope, it was amazing how many people were 
watching through our cameras on the floor, but I definitely was helping some folks well, out Well, and didn't the speaker, Ryan, turn off the cameras? He turned off the C-SPAN camera. The C-SPAN, so that's how I knew right. how and to look. Right, then the senators, so and then the Congress him. people pulled out Periscope. Right, yeah. right. the C-SPAN picked uh, up their feed. Uh, right. and, so are you doing, yeah. like, training sessions for your yeah. colleagues there? <laughs> <laughs> I've definitely had meetings with uh, some of my colleagues about how to optimize social media use. Yeah, yeah. that's impressive. It's impressive. It's a powerful organizing tool. Do you know the the Snapchat folks? So you need to yes. get the yeah because you, you when they they be going public too, so they'll be major players <laughs> yeah. in the larger right. society. But um. yeah, we're sitting in San Francisco uh, at the Democracy in Color Studios, and I'm just uh, uh, I'm really both excited, thrilled, and terrified for the upcoming election. How are you feeling? Feeling because I've heard Democrats both say uh, we might win the Senate, which would Change your, I mean, Bernie Sanders might be head of the budget committee. How would things change for you if that? I mean, the same. We get to control the, the, the Democratic Party controls the agenda. So something like criminal justice form, which we have a bipartisan bill right now out of session, but Mitch McConnell won't put it on the floor. Suddenly we're going to be able to get things moving. And depending on the posture of Paul Ryan, um, 2020 candidate, maybe, um, uh, we're going to see if he's ready to do deals, find common ground uh, to, to move things forward. Okay, so... Uh, assuming Secretary Clinton wins the presidency, then the Democrats get control of the Senate. Um, a whole bunch of judges are going to move very quickly. A whole bunch of judges. Because they've been slow walking uh, district court yeah. judge, circuit court judges. And just quickly from the two of you, what's in the first 100 days? With our best case scenario, what do you want to see happen in the first 100 days? Well, one of the most important things is the Supreme Court, right? I mean, they've held up the Supreme Court nominee. and you There's know, an unfilled... Is an unfilled position. Not only is an unfilled position, is an unfilled position of one of the formerly most conservative members. And so all these five four decisions could actually be overturned, in terms of you know some criminal justice issues around campaign finance reform, and so the strategic significance of that position is huge. And much as I respect Merrick Garland, I actually don't think he's the best nominee in a multiracial society, in that there's plenty of very talented, um, smart, young people of color who could be put forward to be on the court and be on the court for decades to come. And that, I think, is one of the most singularly strategic, significant pieces that should happen right out of the gate. Mm. Corey? Um, I think you're going to see everything from criminal justice reform, some major infrastructure package. I actually think we have a shot of getting um, some immigration reform done simply because I think the Republicans will be motivated to try to get this off the table early Mm -hmm. as possible. Um, So I I think it's very promising if we control the Senate. Will you give a, a, a message to your colleagues Sure. For us, yeah. <laughs> for me, yes. I'll just speak for myself. Um, and it's from California. When the Democrats got a supermajority in the state legislature, they didn't take advantage of it and yes. push through reforms that we know would best serve the uh, vast majority of communities. And I think there's a tremendous opportunity. Uh, if the Senate gets control, and we have a, a, a Democratic Party, uh, we've, Hillary Clinton is president, not to be safe and not to be moderate in the middle of the road, but to push progressive reforms as hard as, as possible. Oh, hallelujah. Amen. And, and I, I agree. Senator Booker, Steve Phillips, thanks so much for joining us on Democracy in Color. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having you us. You guys are great. Democracy in Color is a project of Power Pack Plus. This episode was recorded in San Francisco and produced by Lulu Matute with support from Andrea Calderon, Olivia Parker, and Alex Spencer. I'm Amy Allison. Special thanks to our guests, Senator Cory Booker and Steve Phillips. This episode is our first season finale, but hold on. We have big plans here at Democracy in Color for 2017. 
We'll be here after the election with in-depth analysis and interviews with our best and brightest. So be sure to catch episodes on democracyandcolor.com, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. If you appreciate this podcast as much as we appreciate you, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Tell a friend, a colleague, or a neighbor to tune in for their dose of political intelligence. Until next time, thanks for joining us.